This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, they are off and running in Alberta. I know what I'm going to be doing on April the 16th. I'm going to be sitting in front of my TV watching election returns from that province come in because nothing I love more than a great storyline from an exciting election. That is what they have next door in Alberta. Let me set the scene here for you on this. So there was an Ipsos Global News poll that came out today uh, taking a look at the lay of the land for political parties in Alberta. They They talked to 900 eligible Alberta voters, both online and by telephone. The majority, 53% of the people polled, said that they were going to throw, they seemed ready anyway, to throw their support behind the UCP, the United Conservative Party. 35% said they would vote for the NDP. 60% of those UCP supporters surveyed said they were very certain of their vote. Uh, but 47% of the NDP voters said they were certain about their vote. So this is all going to play into what happens now over the next four weeks as they race towards election day. Uh, but the last couple of days have not been great for Jason Kenney and the United Conservative Party. Is that why uh, Rachel Notley decided to jump in a little bit early? Could have waited another couple of weeks, didn't have to call this until May, but they're off and running there. So we want you to make your prediction. We like to have a little fun with elections, right? I was telling our producer, Alan, that a couple of years ago, back for the 2013 provincial election here in BC, some of you will remember that we did our own little prediction show, right? The day of the election about who's going to win this thing. And the majority of people by far said, oh, NDP are going to win this, the NDP are going to win this. And as we now know, it was a very surprise beast liberal win. So we thought, hey, let's have a little fun. Make your prediction today for the Alberta election, which is happening on April the 16th. Which party do you think is going to win this thing? Do you think it's going to be Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party? Do you think it's going to be Rachel Notley's NDP? Do you think some other party is going to like sweep in here and win this thing? Listen, cast your vote for our hot question of the day. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. And if you're online, please go to Twitter. If you've got an account there and cast your vote, you'll find it at simisara980. You can also find it at cknw. We've already got about five or six dozen votes that has come in on this because we put it up about 10 or 15 minutes ago. And right now, 40% of the people who voted are saying that they think Jason Kenney's UCP is going to win 57% think that Rachel Notley's NDP is going to win and 3% are saying other. I find those results really interesting. Even if they are preliminary, I find those results really interesting. So let's see what your prediction is going to be for the Alberta election. Let me know. Let me know your thoughts too. Send me at cknw.com. My friends, it is time for an election. My name is Rachel Notley, and I am running to be your premier again. You heard it. That was the official announcement this morning. NDP leader Rachel Notley saying that Alberta is off and running to a vote that will take place on April the 16th. And she made that announcement this morning in Calgary. So this campaign comes just a day after the NDP government delivered its throne speech in the legislature, but also uh, kind of right in the middle of it's been a near constant stream of controversies in the last few days, uh, generally involving the main rival for the NDP, the United Conservative Party, led by by Jason Kenney. Two days ago, 
we learned that Mr. Kenny cheated to win his party's leadership. And when he was caught, he didn't tell the truth. Mr. Kenny looked Albertans in the eye and very casually and very comfortably lied to us, which in many ways goes to the heart of this issue, how comfortable Mr. Kenny is with lying. Now, all polls pretty much indicate the NDP far back from the United Conservative Party. But as we all know, especially here in B.C., anything can happen once that writ gets dropped. So let's get an update on what's been happening in Alberta politics with the help of Dwayne Bratt, who's a professor of political science at Mount Royal University and one of the editors of the anthology Orange Chinook Politics in the New Alberta. Dwayne, thank you for joining us. Good morning. What did you think of the last couple of days? Like, has this changed something, do you think, in the Alberta landscape? We will see. I think it's a bit too early to tell because it's not being reflected in the polls yet because it's it's a complicated story. So uh, a year and a half ago when Jason Kenney won the leadership of the United Conservative Party, there were rumors that one of the candidates, Jeff Calloway, was a plant. Um, When he participated, he spent his time attacking Kenny's main rival, Brian Jean, uh, over and over again. And then after the last debate, he pulled out of the race and threw his support behind Kenny. And so there was speculation, myself included, that he was a, a dark horse candidate, a stalking horse to go after Brian Jean to allow Kenny to kind of be above the fray. Then this past week, evidence of that started to compile. So there was a series of documents that showed, at least to me, that the Kenny team recruited Jeff Calloway. They provided him with staff. They wrote his speeches. They provided him a timeline. They, um, <clears throat> they gave him advertising. And in fact, Kenny even went to Calloway's house to host a thank you after Calloway pulled away or pulled out of the race. And so that provided some some real strong evidence of of collusion between the two, which may not have been illegal, may not have been a violation of uh, Elections Alberta rules, but sure did look unseemly or unethical. But there was a big question, and that is, where did the money come from to run Callaway's campaign? And that was the next shoe that drops. Um, So on Friday... Um, the Elections Alberta announced that they had handed off a file to the RCMP to investigate uh, violations of elections law and perhaps criminal law involving the Callaway campaign. And then Monday morning, um, Jen Gerson of McLean's um, wrote about a $60,000 corporate donation to the Callaway team. The problem with that is corporate donations are banned in Alberta to give to parties and their candidates. And so she wrote that it was laundered through 15 different names, uh, some of which may be fictitious names, others that may be real names, but not their money that was put forward. And that's why the RCMP is investigating this right now. Okay, so then with all that, all those headlines from the last couple of days, then do you think that's why the writ got dropped today? No, I think the writ was dropped um, because of a, a momentum that had already built, because some had speculated that she may actually delay the election even longer to see what more could come out. Um, but 
she, I think the timeline uh, for the NDP had already been established. So there was a big rally in Edmonton Sunday night when Rachel Notley officially accepted her nomination in Edmonton Strathcona. Then you have the throne speech yesterday and then the writ being dropped today. So I think uh, a certain momentum had already kicked in that with the revelations that had occurred all week, the discussion about perhaps delaying it, I, I think they decided, no, we, we've got our plan, let's go ahead. But it's still going to be tough for Notley uh, yeah. to win. That's what I was wondering. What are her chances like? Every poll has them way back. Yeah, and this isn't one poll or two polls. This is almost every polling company for a year and a half with significant 10, 15-point deficits. They lead in Edmonton. They trail really, really badly in rural Alberta, and they're down about 10 points or more in the city of Calgary, which will probably be the the, the, the battleground is, is in Calgary. And it's going to be tough. Um, the question is, is this scandal involving the UCP, how is that going to play yeah. in the election campaign? And we simply don't know. Uh, Kenny spoke about this yesterday. He gave a one-hour press conference after the throne speech, and much of it was dedicated to this. And he basically has two major messages. One is uh, communication between campaigns during a leadership race is normal politics, happens all the time, nothing to see here. The second is, the big issue is the loss of jobs, the carbon tax, the pulling out of investment, the lack of a pipeline. Those are the issues that matter to, to Albertans. And that has been repeated over and over again since Kenny said it yesterday by members of the UCP and their supporters. Okay, let's talk about potential pitfalls here then. Starting with the NDP, what, what, is, what, what do they have to watch out for? I mean, the, the big issue is the state of the economy. Um, it, normally, things like health care and education are, are the stories that matter the most in a provincial race. Um, but this one, the top issues are all the state of the economy. Alberta has been in a recession for about four years, um, and uh, that is going to be the focus, is the degree of unemployment, the degree of budget deficits that have been in the tune of $10 billion dollars a year, the the absence of a pipeline, the introduction of a carbon tax, increasing the minimum wage, bringing in a farm bill. So there's a lot of criticism of the NDP record, and that's the challenge that they need to to overcome. Okay, and what about the UCP? What are the potential pitfalls there? The the problem is not just the the scandals that they're going on; it's that. Jason Kenney himself is not personally popular. In fact, Rachel Notley is more personally popular than Jason Kenney is. As well, Jason Kenney has a lot of baggage on social issues around same-sex marriage and abortion and gay rights, and the NDP has tried to highlight his record from the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, the other issue that the, the UCP has to face is they keep talking about they will balance the budget, but they haven't explained how it is that they're going to do that. So there is 
fear that the NDP is raising up that it's going to be through massive cuts to health care and education. And so um, we could very much see a fear and loathing type campaign. Yeah, it does sound like it's going to get negative pretty quickly. Just listen to the comments this morning from Rachel Notley as well. Uh, let's also talk here, Dwayne, about what, what we call in politics bozo eruptions from candidates because it sounds like there's Happened already... last night. Yes, yeah, let's talk about that. So, Kaylin Ford is a brand new uh, recruit. In fact, um, there was a huge glowing profile written about her in the Calgary Herald. She's in her early 30s. She's a mother. She's well-educated. And she was put in a real battleground riding in Calgary. And then yesterday, stories surfaced about some Facebook posts that tied her to uh, white nationalism, white supremacy, and by the end of the evening, she had resigned. This isn't just a blow to her. I mean, on the weekend, she opened up her campaign office that included Lorraine Harper, Stephen Harper's wife. Mm. So she was high profile. Yeah. And then it just disappeared. This is not the first uh, candidate with ties to white supremacy that has emerged in the UCP. They to Jason Kenney's credit, he's removed all of them when evidence has come forward, but it's raised questions about what is it about the UCP that's attracting these odious types of people. And so is there more that's possibly going to come out about this uh, other candidates during an election? Because in, in 2012, the Wild Rose Party looked on the verge right. of victory in Alberta, and then there was a series of comments about gays dying in a lake of fire, and you need to vote for the white Caucasian male because they're the only ones that can represent all ethnicities, um, some discussion around climate change, and all of a sudden the Wild Rose is defeated by the, the PCs. Right. Okay. So then do you want to make a prediction on this, Dwayne? <laughs> Uh, a week ago, yeah. <laughs> a week ago, I was saying, you know, that the the election was baked in. I was more interested to see how the Kenny government could govern. Um, now, who knows what's going to happen during this election campaign? That's why we have campaigns. That is exactly. We've learned that lesson in BC before, so it's always yes. interesting to see it happen somewhere and this, else. And, and BC is going to be a focus of this campaign. Ah, in what way? Uh, all about the pipelines. And in fact, Kenny has, has talked about shutting off the flow to uh, shutting off the flow of oil to BC if they don't uh, stand away from the pipeline dispute. Interesting. Well, we'll all be watching then for the next couple of weeks. Dwayne, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, you're welcome. That is Dwayne Bratt, pr Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University. We're going to have to check back in with him during this campaign to see how it is going. Well, the real estate market is not what it once was, but what it is, well, we still don't really know that. We know it's slow. We know prices aren't what they used to be, but there is still a lot of fluctuation out there. One thing we are hearing more about, though, is foreclosures. Anecdotally, some real estate agents say they are seeing more of them. But is that the case? Like when the market was going up, it was easy for people to refinance a home and perhaps stay out of financial trouble. So what is happening out there now? Well, that's what we're going to try to figure out with the help of our next guest. Satnam Sidhu is with us, a real estate agent for almost 40 years, knows a lot about the issue of foreclosures, former president of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, and is cur currently teaches a class on foreclosures, actually. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Simi. So have you been seeing more foreclosures happen out there? Are you hearing about this from other real estate agents? Um, yes. Well, I can speak firsthand. Uh, I've listed and sold 
I don't know, somewhere in excess of 500 foreclosures over the life of my career. And the number of foreclosures, uh, I've been tracking them for years, um, has gone up significantly in the past eight, ten months. For example, uh, last summer there were only 41 foreclosures listed all the way between Whistler to all the way to Hope. Today, there's uh, over 70 of them listed between Whistler and Hope. Now, someone would say, well, it's only an increase of, uh, of 30. However, that's a, that's a 75% increase in the number of foreclosures on the market from last summer. That's a fairly substantial increase. It is. Is there any kind of um, kind of a unifying theme? Like, is there a reason why these properties are going under? Were they overpriced? Like, what, what are the situations? Well, when we were in a increasing market, when the prices were going up every month, people were able to put their homes on the market if they were in difficulty and were able to sell them before the mortgage companies took over. That has not been the case lately with the number of sales going down. I mean, you, as you probably know, Simi, sales are down yeah. roughly 40% uh, over the past year. I mean, that's a that's a fairly big drop in the number of sales. And inventory, on the other hand, is up almost 50% from a year ago. So people have a lot more choices, uh, prices have come down, and uh, people are not able to sell their homes. And now, as a result, the mortgage companies and the banks and different institutions are uh, taking control of the sale and putting the properties on the market themselves. Yeah. Is this a bank foreclosure or are they, um, as you said, like mortgage companies or other companies that are doing this? Well, up until up until the last uh, couple of years, the majority of the foreclosures were being foreclosed on by, let's say, the big five, you know, the, the Royal Banks, the right. TDs, the CIBCs. However, I've seen that trend change lately. The majority of the foreclosures that are on the market right now, I would say roughly three quarters of them are being foreclosed upon by private lenders either a private individual or a limited company that someone has uh, you know has invested their second mortgages or whatever in or mix i don't know if you're familiar with mixed mortgage investment corporations so right now three quarters of the foreclosures that are on the market are being sold by these private individuals and not the banks as opposed to Right. A few years ago, it was the big banks that were doing the foreclosing. But as you know, the banks uh, got uh, much stricter on their lending requirements. And as a result, the people had to go to private institutions to get borrow money or refinance or whatever. So what does this tell us then? So does that do you think that these are houses or homes that were bought at, at the height of the market? Um, not necessarily. Some of them were just people that, uh, for whatever reason, they they maybe they lost their job, maybe um, they were got sick or something like that, and and many of them borrowed money from these private individuals or private companies, and then were not able to pay them. The values have dropped, and now the private institutions are foreclosing. Okay, so but that's a, that's something new, right? Where you see that many private institutions as opposed yep. to banks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, the majority of my foreclosure business five years ago, four years ago, were all with the larger lenders. Right now, as I said, three quarters of them are being sold by private institutions. And what does it take to put somebody into foreclosure? Like, what are the steps that that have to happen? 
Oh, well, usually nothing really happens for the first few months. Most lenders have a policy. The bigger lenders have a policy where they do nothing for 90 days. And then when you're 90 days in, fall, in default, then the property goes to their foreclosure department and then the, the lawyers get involved. So by the time the property is actually put on the market, you could be four or five months of, in default in your mortgage payments. And then... You, people have a redemption period. That redemption period is how much time the courts give the owner an opportunity themselves to deal with the matter, put the property on the market. And in the past, they were able to put the properties on the market and they would sell because the market was so active. Now, with the change in the in the number of sales and the, and the prices, people are not able to sell. So therefore, the lenders are taking over. Right. So in all your years of experience, then, have you seen kind of foreclosures go up and down over oh, the years? Well, I'll give you, a, I'll give you an idea. Um, five years ago, th- there were over 800 foreclosures sold in the Lower Mainland. When I mean Lower Mainland, I mean all the way from Whistler out to Abbotsford sort of thing. Over 800. Last year, on the other hand, there were less than 100. Wow. So and that and that number has been coming down steadily because the prices were going up over the last few years. Now, last year I think was kind of the trough for the number of foreclosures sold, and I think now we've kind of gone past that, and now I think we will start to see a further increase in, in the number of foreclosures. Interesting. When was the worst time? Like when you think back, was that two thousand eight, like two thousand nine period? Was that a bad time? Uh, well, oh eight the. The last uh, little slowdown we had in the market was 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 a very short time. It was only for about nine months in '08, and by the spring of '09, the market picked up and the prices continued to climb. So, the number of foreclosures never really hit the market because it was such a, uh, a short period right. of, of a slowdown. Now this period is a little a little longer, and so now I think that we will see many more foreclosures on the market over the coming years, I think. Are they usually tied, do you think, with how the economy is doing, or is it really mainly how the housing market is doing? Well, it's housing and also interest rates. I mean, we, we had a period of years there where the interest rates were rock bottom. Now they've started to go up. Now it appears that they may not go up very much, but anyone that had to renew a mortgage, uh, everyone is renewing at a higher rate than the mortgage they had three, four, or five years ago. Right. So do you predict then to be, what do you think is going to be happening in the next year or so? Well, a number of foreclosures will go up. And uh, and unless there's a big change in the market, we may see a further erosion in prices. Really? So you think prices still haven't come fully down? Well, not until the number of sales starts to pick up. You can't have sales at 40% below the 10-year average and prices going up. Yeah. Is that what you see happening? Like, what What is the demand out there like right now? Single-family homes is very slow. If Now, mind you, if a home is priced right, there's still lots of buyers out there. So we may have, we, we may be building a pent-up demand, which is what happened in 08 when we had a slowdown in the market. And then in 09, it really took off. Why? Because people were not buying in 08. So people are, are not buying right now, or certainly not in huge numbers. So there's probably a, a big pent-up demand that may be building, and we may see another big run-up in prices, you if, know, a yeah. year, two years, three years down the road. Right, so they're waiting for prices to get lower, prices are yep. getting lower, but at some point they're going to have to buy. Yep, and as the prices come down, more people will come into the market. Oh, that is so interesting. Listen, thank you so much for your time on this today. 
Oh, you're very welcome, Simi. I learned a lot. That is Satnam Sidhu, who's a real estate agent for almost 40 years. I love stories that talk about, you know, what are the chances of that happening? Things that are amazing coincidences and random things that happen. So when I heard about this next one, I thought, oh, we have got to talk about this on the show. I'm going to let our guest explain this situation. It's Jana Pruden, who's a feature writer for the Globe and Mail newspaper. Hi, Jana. Hi, Jana. Hello. Thank you so much for talking about this with us. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a very bizarre story, isn't it? Like, do you you still find it kind of surprising? I do really find it surprising. Every time it comes up, I usually go through a phase of like, I can't believe that happened. And how did that happen? (laughs) Exactly. It still surprises me and I still can't really make sense of it. Okay, so let's tell everybody what this was. Walk us through this story. Right. So uh, this is just about well, exactly three years ago, three years ago, and I think a week or something. And a friend of mine was in town in Edmonton, where I live, and she owns a store in Regina. So she was going to this fashion trade show where people buy wholesale for their stores and their boutiques. So I went along with her to help her out. And, you know, it's just this massive amount of stuff, like huge, huge, huge amount of products, one of everything in every color and all of this stock that people are buying. And we were there all day. I was just exhausted by the end. And we were leaving and she just stopped to look at some jewelry and I kind of drifted away. And there was um, this filmy looking scarf that had newspaper print on it. And I don't think before that point I ever looked closely at newsprint fabric in my life. (laughs) But I just sort of casually flicked the scarf And I saw my byline, my own byline. You saw your name on it. I saw my name. And I don't even know, you know, in retrospect, how I recognized it. The scarf is very filmy and the writing is quite blurry. So I don't even know actually how it was so recognizable to me. Um, But I saw it and then I said some words that can't be said on the radio (laughs) because I was so shocked. Um, and then, although at a wholesale show, they're not supposed to really sell you things there, but the woman was so shocked also that she agreed to sell me this scarf. And um, that set me on this odyssey of trying to figure out how this scarf uh, that had been made in China, manufactured in China, and had a very wide and strange array of stories from around the world and from a very long period of time, about 100 years, uh, ended up having one of my stories, a very random, weird story for me on it. And um, and then also the question of how I possibly could have seen it and yeah, found it. That's the thing I can't wrap my head around. Like, what are the chances of you being at a fashion trade show and then seeing this scarf that just randomly had your name on it? So you, you decided to dig into this, right? To try to find out how did that happen? How did that scarf get created? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a reporter. So my first instinct is like, okay, well, like how did this scarf come to be and also is there any way to explain how I possibly could have found it the the two sort of central questions of that piece of (laughs) that that so yeah I said about trying to figure out how the scarf had been made um, trying to source all of the stories that were on it and see if there was any rhyme or reason to what got chosen um, 
And then even interviewing, you know, mathematicians and coincidence experts trying to determine what the chances were of me. <laughs> and what were they? It. Uh, well, it's incalculable. Is it's it really? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the, that kind of coincidence, because there's all kinds of coincidences. There's one, say, where we run into someone at an airport, you know, around the world that we know from another city. So someone from Edmonton, we bump into each other at the airport in Australia. It seems like a big coincidence. And so some of those are not as big coincidences as they seem when you actually do the numbers. Um, And then other coincidences, you know, if you think, oh, I was just thinking about that person and then I saw them. um, Those are a bit hard to measure because even just how memory works, it's hard to prove that you were thinking about that before it happened and all of that. So my coincidence is interesting because it's a completely pure coincidence. There's no way it could happen. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's... There's no way you could make that happen or be misremembering it. So, <laughs> wow. Did you ever find out why your story got chosen to be on this scarf? Like, how did it end up on this scarf that was made in China? Yeah. I mean, I got pretty far along in my research of the scarf. I got a bit obsessed with it. And, uh, you know, at one point, I remember my husband saying it looked like it looked like a scene in a movie where a cop is tracking a serial killer or something and there's like this yeah. board with things all over <laughs> it. Um, so, you know, the stories are from around the world. As I said, they do go back 100 years uh, or more. So there's a story from Hawaii about a volcano exploding. There's, you know, these strange classified ads from the States in the 90s. There's a story, a couple of stories from France. Um, so there really appears to be no rhyme or reason whatsoever to the subject matter. My story is a story about mad cow disease, um, which is also, I think, one of the only stories I ever wrote about mad cow disease and um, sort of a random, extremely weird subject to end up on a scarf. Yeah. Uh, So ultimately, I did track down the person who imported it to North America, and he was quite shocked that I had found it and that I'd even been able to read anything on it and you know he he told me like it's not meant to be read it's just supposed to look like newsprint um but the trail kind of went cold there and when you look at the sheer amount the sheer volume of fabric that is made in china you know it it really is an unbelievably vast amount of material that's being produced constantly so to find uh exactly how that little ream of fabric came to be seems to be a needle in a a haystack. Wow. Well, you've done it once, right, Jenna? You could probably do it again. Uh, Listen, (laughs) I love this story. It's absolutely amazing. And hey, congratulations, by the way, uh, for being a finalist at the National Newspaper Awards. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for joining us and telling us a story. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. That's Jenna Pruden. She's a feature writer for the Globe and Mail newspaper. You know, in the last 20 years or so, there are very few people who have spoken so openly about Islam and faith and world politics as author Urshad Manji. She has written several books, one of which, The Trouble with Islam Today, has been translated into 30 different languages. Well, her latest is also very much a sign of our current times. It's called Don't Label Me, an incredible conversation for divided times. It's about essentially bridging the divide with our community members, our neighbors, or all of us. So we wanted to find out more about this. Urshad Manji joins us now. Thank you so much for being here.
Hello. Well, I guess we lost her. Well, we thought she was there. We're going to try to get her back on this because it is a fascinating book. I'll just tell you a little bit about it, actually, if you haven't seen it yet. It's essentially a conversation that she had uh, with her dog, Lily. Her dog, Lily, was brought in as an emotional support dog and tried to help her through some health issues that she was having. And that really changed her outlook on things. So I'm going to try this one more time and see if she's with us. Uh, Hello. Hi, Sumi. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Well, the book is just so unique. I have to ask you, like, what brought you to writing this book? (laughs) Well, um, so I have been treated as a poster child of multiculturalism for most of my life. And from that position, I've been able to observe how diversity actually gets practiced. And I've been noticing more and more over the last number of years, Simi, that diversity is being practiced as labeling. You know, throwing labels such as um, black or queer or feminist or, um, on the very negative side, uh, libtard or racist. And um, I have been uh, really troubled by all of this slicing and dicing of individuals into, you know, groupiness. Uh, because, frankly, that's what the early colonists did, both in Canada and the United States, right? They, they sliced and yeah. diced people into, you know, compartments, stuffed those, those people into those compartments, assigned value to them, and then created a hierarchy based on those values. And that's kind of like what, you know, the supposedly enlightened folks among us are doing today. I just don't know how that amounts to progress. Right. How did you see that discussion, though, happening as you were conversing with your dog? (laughs) Okay, so I know that sounds absurd, but hear me out. Um, So, you know, one of the points I'm making in this book is that we all have an other, somebody or something that we are afraid of, and that if only we lowered our defenses and actually engaged with the other, uh, we would see that those anxieties that we have have no substance and moreover are begging to be overcome. So get this, raised as a Muslim and still identifying as one, um, I had a deathly fear of dogs. And one year I had a terrible health crisis and my then partner, now wife, Laura, uh, urged me to uh, adopt a dog because she said, you have to understand that they have incredible healing properties. Well, I had to get over my fear of dogs in order to do that. But when I did, I learned something about Lily, my dog, that was, frankly, mind-blowing. So here is somebody, um, I would call her a somebody, she's a being, not a thing, um, who was blind and who was old. But, But those were my labels for her. And the fact of the matter is, she may have been both of those things factually, but in a larger sense, she was so much more. She was the most independent being I have ever had the pleasure of, uh, of, of uh, engaging with. And that reminded me that everything that I've been thinking about the way, the corrupt way in which diversity is being practiced these days, can even be represented by this dog. And so I began talking to her about my ideas. And I'll just finish off the story by saying, you know, every once in a while, she would tilt her head as I was speaking with her as if to ask, Mama, what have you been smoking? Or, <laughs> Mama, have you thought about this, this particular point from a point of view, uh, you know, that is opposite to yours? That's when I realized, my God, we can actually role model the kind of discussion in this book, Lily and I, 
that I am suggesting that our readers try with the people in their lives. So how would that work then, Urshad? Like, are you suggest people that you disagree with? Like, we're so quick, you're right, to label people and say, I'm not going to talk to that person. How do we now, how do you break bread with those people? Well, um, I'm going to say something that might sound obvious, but then I'll backtrack to explain why it's so hard. First thing we got to do, first thing we got to do is take a deep breath. Um, and slow down the blood rush in our body. You see, we are all born with a brain that is, in the first instance, impulsive. And that brain, this very ancient brain of ours, worked well for us when we were living on the savanna and and hunting and gathering our food. Because back then, everything that moved was a potential threat. The problem is that today, we, we don't live in that kind of society, yet the ancient part of our brain has not evolved to catch up with today. So even when we face mere disagreement, the brain makes us believe that we are facing something like uh, mortal threat, mortal Ah. danger. And that's why we actually have to outwit our own brain. And you can do that first by taking a deep breath. And that way you are slow jamming your brain and buying time to think in a more rational way. Then the next thing to do is listen. Listen to understand, not to win. Listen to the other person's point of view and ask questions uh, based not on any kind of hidden agenda that you have to change their mind, but rather on what you have heard them say. And what you're doing, um, you know, is tapping into a very basic law of human psychology, which is this. If you want to be heard, you first have to be willing to hear. Because when you hear your other, their emotional defenses come down. And that way, they are much more likely to hear you. Right. If I could sort of sum up this, uh, you know, what, what do I do question, uh, think about it like this, and I'll get a little Kennedy-esque about this. <laughs> Ask not what you can do to change the other person's mind. Ask what you are missing about the other person. And watch what happens in that conversation. Wow, that's that's really powerful. Listen, when you're in town, you're going to have to come in and spend some more time with us here in studio. I would love to do that. All right, Th- listen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. That is Urshad Manji. Now, the book is called Don't Label Me, An Incredible Conversation for Divided Times. Right now, though, we also want to get an update on the number of suspected overdose deaths. We know we've got a crisis in this province. We've had a public health crisis going on almost three years now. So are we making any progress? Well, let's find out what the latest numbers tell us about this. Andy Watson is with us, the Manager of Strategic Communications at the BC Coroner's Service. Andy, thank you for being back with us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on the show today. Let's talk about these January numbers. So was there anything positive about what we saw happening in January? I think the key message today is cautious optimism. Uh, Based on the preliminary data we've collected, we've seen a a 31% decrease year over year with the number of illicit drug overdose deaths. And, you know, I think you said it off the top, but we, you know, we're still in the middle of a crisis and there's still way too many people dying from, from this uh, from this terrible situation. But uh, I guess that's the one silver lining today, perhaps, is that we do see a decrease both year over year and month over month. Uh, but unfortunately, we continue to see a high degree of toxicity in the, in the drug supply, fentanyl accounting for almost 90% of those deaths. 
Wow. Okay. So even though there's some positives, there's still some things that we really need to be aware of. Yeah, I think the other surprise perhaps was that carfentanil was detected in 13 of the 90 overdose deaths we saw in January of 2019. And so, I mean, just bare numbers, that may not mean a lot, but by comparison, carfentanil was detected in 35 suspected overdose deaths in the entire year in 2018. So with 13 in just one month, uh, we saw a big spike there. So we're monitoring that and sharing that information with our partners in the health authorities for awareness. Um, you know, since we started testing for carfentanil in June of 2017, uh, we've seen now uh, over the first year and a half of doing that, we've seen about 140 um, uh, carfentanil detected deaths um, in BC. Um, and it, so it's it's interesting just to see it's interesting to see where things are going, and yeah. we continue to try and monitor that. Uh, you know, fentanyl and its analogs, though certainly being detected in, in a number of deaths, it's uh, it's cause for interest and shows very clearly that the drug supply, you know, we continue to talk about don't use alone, don't use without somebody there that can help you. We know there's drug testing services there that you can check your drugs before you use them, but I still think we have an issue of stigma here in the province, and we continue to try and go back to the drawing board and working with our partners to see, well, what can we do to address this? Okay, so there's a rise in the number of carfentanil-related deaths here, but overall the numbers are down. So what does that tell us? Well, I think, I mean, again, cautious optimism because, you know, we, we have only a short time frame of, of uh, deaths that we're measuring for the start of 2019. But I think what it, you know, despite that caution, um, I think it does show that, you know, we've either, you know, we saw signs of a plateau um, late last year, and so maybe we're starting to turn the corner. You know, we'll have to see data over a few more months to really be certain on that. But, um, you know, I think what it does show us is that the, the message is getting out there. Uh, and certainly, I think, you know, if we were to look since the public health emergency was declared uh, almost three years ago and now, I think the discussion is a little bit more fluid. I think people are more aware of it. There's, there's certainly been a reduction in stigma, but we still have, we still have work to do. Uh, we can't rest on a positive uh, month of data. We've we've got to do more work. I mean, in Vancouver alone, you know, we're seeing um, almost a third of the deaths across the province um, in the city of Vancouver. And I'm sure, there are people listening right now. You know, three years ago, you may not have may not have known someone that's been right. impacted directly by this crisis. Now, I think everyone has a story and has a tale and knows someone that's been impacted. Whether it's your your barber or your hairdresser or your neighbor or your coach or, you know, somebody that you yeah. work with or somebody that you went to school with. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's sad. Uh, we continue to see males overrepresented in the data. We continue to see that, you know, it, despite the fact that we're trying to get that message out, people are using alone, using indoors. And so access those safe consumption, supervised consumption, drug overdose prevention sites, use the drug checking services, I know the health authorities are always looking for new opportunities to try and provide um, different options for folks. So uh, we'll just continue to try and drive the data out there in hopes that these conversations continue and we can continue to access support and resources to uh, to help combat this. You mentioned males are overrepresented again. That has always been the case. Has anything changed about the age of the males who are overdosing? No, we continue to see that demographic, in particular the thir males in their 30s, but really it's overall it's males 30 to 59. Um, they're, for January of 2019 alone, three in every four deaths uh, were males 30 to 59 years of age. Um, 
The other thing that we are seeing too is, you know, I think there's probably a, uh, you know, when you have a high profile uh, suspected illicit drug overdose death uh, involving the young person, it seems to generate a lot of attention and interest. And I think sometimes it creates a bit of a false narrative. Um, and certainly it's not something we're seeing in our data. In fact, in, in January of 2019, uh, there was only one death involving somebody under the age of 19. Uh, I, so it shows you, again, that, that demographic, 30 to 39-year-olds. We also saw a bit of an uptick in the 50 to 59 age group, but uh, we'll continue to monitor that and see if there's any additional trend on that piece. You mentioned that one-third of the deaths were in Vancouver. Where are the other hotspots? So, I mean, Surrey, uh, Surrey, Vancouver, and Victoria continue to be the three top reporting townships. Um, but we're, we, one thing, I guess, that, you know, since I, we've started measuring this data and, and reporting it out, I think it was more concentrated in the urban centres, and certainly we're starting to see it now spread uh, into the north, uh, certainly a little bit more in the Okanagan. Um, but, yeah, northern BC is probably the one area where we saw it toward the end of 2018 and into early 2019, uh, we've seen an uptick, um, both rural and urban settings in in the in the northern region. Now, what would it take, Andy, for us to say that something is a trend? We this is two months in a row, right, where we see we've seen the numbers go down. But when do when can we start to feel a bit hopeful? Well, I think there's probably three things that we need to look at. One, we have to allow a little bit more time for these investigations to conclude for you know November and December of 2018, and then January of 2019, and We had one month last year where we reported under 100 deaths, and then three months later that number had already moved from, I think it was 92 up to 115. So uh, as as post-mortem testing results came in, we were way off on our initial uh, update. So again, I think time, we have to allow time. I think we have to allow uh, seeing something in a three-, four-, five-month trend. And I think the third thing is, you know, we hear a lot of anecdotal stories about uh, you know, as, as as deaths are reported to us, and I think you know, hearing that intel as it comes in too of of where people are dying and how people are dying, I think one of the one of the things we have to look at is that people are um, are able to have life saving measures taken, whether that's the administration of naloxone or you know somebody that's been able to report a bad batch and have an alert go out. Anytime you see a sort of a life saving measure that's been put in place and been successful. I mean, I, I applaud the paramedics and the firefighters yeah. and the police and all the people out on the front lines that are dealing with this crisis because um, they are also helping with those education efforts. And they're, they're impacting and dealing, you know, face-to-face with the folks on the, on, that, are, that are at the center of this crisis. And, you know, I know our coroners are, you know, they'll talk to families and friends of, of the deceased and, you know, really try and encourage, you know, within that community if there are other people that are using just, you know, using that tragedy and the, the unfortunate nature of a death to drive that message home. Um, nobody should fear, fear having a discussion around this. People use drugs for all sorts of different reasons and pain comes in all sorts of different forms. Yeah, that is... We have to create the space for people to be able to use without stigma. So true. All right. Well, they're so cautiously optimistic that Andy is what we're going to go with, but still a, an alarming increase in the number of deaths related to carfentanil. Yeah, and hopefully next time we chat, it'll be a more continued trend on the downward uh, tick, and and hopefully we won't be talking about carfentanil again. Hopefully. Andy, thank you so much for your time. 
Thanks, Timmy. Appreciate the interest. Always interested in these numbers. That's Andy Watson, who's the manager of strategic communications for the BC Coroner's Service. They just released once again their their numbers for the month of January. And there's some things to be positive about, some things to also be a little concerned over, as he mentioned there. The good news is that the actual number of overdoses is down year over year, about 30%. So from January 2018 to January 2019, 30% fewer people were killed. That is the good news. Uh, January figures, though, are still pretty high. 90 people died of suspected overdoses in January, but that's compared to 130 the year before. Uh, So still a concern there. But here's where they're most concerned, and that has to do with carfentanil. Carfentanil is said to be something like 100 times stronger than fentanyl, and we know how dangerous and deadly fentanyl has been in all of this. Well, carfentanil was found in 13 of the fatal cases in January, 13 in one month, and that compares with 35 in the entire year of 2018. So you can see why that one little note in there is very important to health officials as they try to make a dent in these overdose numbers that we have been now following for three years as this public health crisis continues in our province. All right, let's talk about the federal budget. It has just come down in Ottawa. There are lots of details in there that people are going to be interested in. Uh, For instance, they're going to lower the interest rate on Canada student loans to the prime rate. The current rate is prime plus two and a half percentage points. Uh, They're going to create something called a new Canadian drug agency. They're going to centralize the evaluations of the effectiveness and efficiency of new drugs and buy in bulk nationwide instead of province by province. This is the the thing that people are pointing to is perhaps the beginning of a national pharmacare program. Uh, As well, there's money in there to subsidize the costs of drugs for rare diseases. There's money in there for rebates on electric or hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. So there's there's a a lot of stuff that's going to be broken down in here. But let's get some initial analysis and reaction to what we have seen and heard so far. Uh, Alex Hemingway joins us now, an economist and public finance policy expert with the Canadian Centers for Policy Alternatives. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be with you. Still parsing through that budget. Yeah, I'll bet. Me too. So what's your initial reaction from what you've seen so far? Well, I think I had a chance to speak with uh, my colleague in the lockup in Ottawa and, and having taken an initial look, I would say, you know, the government has identified important areas that need investment, uh, but the scale of that uh, investment and 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 the, the, some of the specifics are really off base when it comes to uh, addressing issues like climate change, unaffordable housing, uh, the lack of wage raises uh, uh, that Canadians are facing. Uh, this isn't a budget that's ambitious enough to move the needle uh, in, in the way we'd like to see on a number of those issues. So what would you call it if it's not ambitious? Is it Do you find it a disappointment? Well, I think it's uh, there's sort of a holding pattern here, and, and uh, we, we may be uh, seeing uh, more announcements in the lead-up to an election and, and a, a government that's holding its cards a little close at the moment. Okay, so what were you thinking, what were you hoping for? What did you want to see in here? Well, for example, the one, one area that I think is generally encouraging is that those pharmacare announcements uh, that you mentioned, uh, but the devil will be in the details. We and others have produced uh, research that show that uh, moving towards a universal single-payer national pharma 
care program would uh, not only be good for people's access to drugs and, and, and health care uh, uh, at an affordable level, but actually across the country that would save uh, uh, multiple billions of dollars per year uh, in overall cost savings to the Canadian economy. They've sort of left the door open at this point of, uh, uh, to the issue of whether we're going to see a fill in the gaps pharmacare program that covers off those that aren't currently covered privately, or whether we're going to see a, a full-throated uh, universal single-payer system. So that's an important one. And when you look at the uh, housing measures, uh, a big one for us uh, out here in, in BC and in Vancouver, uh, it, the, the, the measures that we're seeing uh, uh, are a bit concerning. So, for example, one is a, a first-time buyer's incentive that's actually uh, very similar to the one that the previous B.C. government uh, announced and was widely panned by economists because what we're talking about here is extending credit to, to first-time buyers uh, in a way that actually tends to inflate markets when really what we need is direct investment uh, in affordable housing and an increase in the stock of purpose-built rentals. Right. So when you when you look at some of the ideas that kind of need to be fleshed out more, as you said, do you think we're mm-hmm. going to get more details maybe this fall when the election campaign is underway? Well, that's uh, certainly something we'll be watching for. And, you know, uh, still looking through that budget, I haven't heard anyone say yet anything about the uh, for example, uh, funding the Broadway subway line, uh, which is uh, would, would be very important both from the perspective of making our city work here in Vancouver, but also from a climate change perspective. You know, we are seeing investments in electric vehicles uh, uh, in the budget, but actually much more efficient way of, uh, and that's fine and that's good, but a much more efficient way of reducing emissions uh, is investment in, in mass transit. Yeah. Do you see any infrastructure mentions in there? Uh, I haven't worked my way through that section yet, uh, so I can't say too much about that one. Right. I haven't really seen any highlights from that either. So No, I haven't either. Yeah, when you look at this then, Alex, like, does this give you any kind of an idea of what we're going to be hearing about this fall? Well, I, I think uh, Pharmacare uh, is is one that we're going to hear about, and uh, we'll be wanting to parse the details of that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how uh, climate change is, is approached uh, uh, leading into the election. I mean, climate change is an emergency. Uh, we are seeing these EV measures. Uh, the carbon tax has been a hot topic over the past year or so. So I, I have no doubt we'll be hearing about that in some form or another. Uh, and, you know, one of the other issues that the government has been highlighting uh, in the budget is around skills training, especially for people in, in mid mid-career, that's an important priority. Uh, but again, the, the, the way that it's been structured uh, from what I've seen so far and what the signals were pre-budget is a kind of self-savings approach to creating these training savings accounts. Uh, but the problem with that is you have to have money to save money. So that's, uh, you know, can be uh, uh, not as helpful as it needs to be for uh, people who need retraining but are right. already squeezed financially. I guess when I looked at it, and I'm going over and over and over again, I'm like, what is the theme for this budget? What are they hoping to, what's the message that you think they want to put out there? Uh, that's that, that's a good question. Uh, I, I'm not seeing a, a clear unifying theme uh, uh, as yet. Uh, you, you see these uh, more fill-in-the-gaps piecemeal measures. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, whether it's the first-time buyer's credit or this relatively modest uh, skills training uh, program. Yeah. I have to say I'm surprised by that, right? Because, like, it is an election year we're talking about. 
Yeah, it, it's an election year. Uh, the economy uh, is cooling a bit, and Canada's in a strong fiscal position. So it actually would make sense to go uh, big right now to help ramp up investment in, in areas where we really need it uh, and, and, and keep that economy going strong. So it is uh, initial impression is that it's, uh, it is a bit surprising not to see some bigger measures in here. That's what I thought, too. And Alex, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Appreciate that. That's Alex Hemingway, who's an economist and a public finance policy expert with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives.